You're listening to Strange by Nature, your guide to the strange, weird, unbelievable, and improbable wonders of the natural world. Hello, everyone. Thanks for being here today. I am Kirk Mona, and I am joined today by Rachel Ginza and Victoria Thompson. We are all professional naturalists who together have scoured the world for weird and wonderful wonders just to please your mammalian brain's desire for novelty. Isn't that nice? Let's do this. All right. I'm going first this week. Um, So I am an only child, and until recently... Sibling rivalry was kind of more in the theoretical realm for me. Um, I'm now the mom of two-year-old twins, so it's it's become a lot more real lately. But I would imagine me, they're fun, yeah. aren't they? As a twin, <laughs> indeed. Um, my kids' squabbles over toys and books, though, are nothing compared with some of the stuff that goes on in the animal kingdom. So I'm sure you've probably heard of the runt of the litter, like with a puppy or a pig. Animals that have multiple births, there's often one that just kind of got short stinted in the in the womb and is sickly and small and has trouble getting enough milk and often will die. That was me. Um, <laughs> and yet you've made it this far. <laughs> the runt's revenge. Um, but this is something much weirder. Uh, I am going to talk today about intrauterine cannibalism. Oh my! Well, this already this is sounds gonna just... be something. Who? Now, Rachel, you said you were are you are a twin? Yes, I am. Uh, we're all, and the audience is all glad that you were not a victim of this. I am very yeah. glad about that, um, considering that even though I was the smaller twin, I was born first, so I win. Tell lucky. us all. Tell us all about it, Victoria. Well. Uh, There is stuff that goes on among humans and in other places uh, among mammals where a twin can get absorbed by another twin, but that's not what I'm talking about today. Today I'm going to talk about sharks. Sharks. I love sharks. (laughs) (laughs) I know where this is going. I don't. Sharks give birth to live young, which which is kind of surprising because you don't think about fish as being pregnant and and giving birth like that. But... uh, some, many of them do, and they have different strategies for feeding their little embryos. Uh, basically what happens is a shark has two uteruses, and it, it'll lay eggs inside the uterus, and then the thing hatches out in the uterus and kind of grows there until it's ready to be born. So a little different than how mammals do it. Uh, where it's most similar to mammals, some species of shark, the, the embryo will consume all the yolk in its egg, and then the yolk sac attaches to the uterus and forms a kind of a placenta. Hmm. Pretty normal. Okay. Right. Some shark moms uh, feed their babies by making a lot of extra unfertilized eggs. And after the embryo hatches out inside their uterus, it will eat the other eggs. So that's, uh, you know, that's cannibalism, but uh, a pretty mild form, right? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of like, you know, feeding a chicken uh, scrambled eggs. I know we're in a right. podcast, but I'm just so shocked. I'm speechless. Just I wish I wish you could all see uh, Rachel's face. <laughs> it's going to get better, too. Oh, God. Um, actually, within this group where they eat the eggs, Oophagy, there's one species called the tawny nurse shark, where the, the embryo can actually swim from one uterus to the other 
to consume extra eggs. And it can poke its head out of the cervix well before it's born. Just take a peek around and see how the ocean is today. I hate that. (laughs) (laughs) Sounds really uncomfortable Mm -hmm. uh, for mom. But what do I know? I'm not a shark. Okay, now we get to our star of the show today. The sand tiger shark also goes by a number of other names, the gray nurse shark. Uh, its, uh, its Latin name is Carcarius taurus. And these guys, they're, they're pretty sharky looking. They have really scary teeth. They have those little nasty beady eyes. They look like they want to eat you. They're actually not very dangerous to humans at all. Um, their mouths really aren't big enough to bite people, even if they were inclined to. They're not aggressive. They're fine. They're nice sharks. <laughs> but... They practice what's known as adelphophagy, eating one's brother. Adelpho for brother, uh, phagy for eating. Yeah. Do they eat? Do they eat sisters, or is it like a brother thing only? Oh, it's just the inherent sexism of. Uh, That's kind of what I oh, think. Oh, okay. Yeah. I mean, personally, it, when I was a child, that would have been great to know about because, like, my brother was much bigger than I was, and I was—he was mean sometimes. Hungry often. Yeah, he ate everything. Couldn't even wow. put my name on things. It was terrible. Anyway. <laughs> well, anyway, these guys, uh, they actually mate with several uh, several males. And so the different eggs in their uteruses can be fertilized by different males. But the first embryo to hatch is the lucky one. They are about six centimeters long when they hatch. And... That first one in each uterus to hatch then goes on to eat all the other fertilized embryos or eggs, experiencing exponential growth in, uh, in, their, in their 8 to 12 month gestation. So they start out at 6 centimeters when they hatch inside, and when they're born, they're up to a meter or even a little larger oh. in length. Oh. Yeah. oh my. So this is a really interesting That's... reproductive strategy. because So right. the shark mom only gives birth to two babies, and she only gives birth every one to two years. It's one of the lowest reproductive rate for sharks. But you can imagine, if you're already a meter-long shark when you're born, there's not a whole lot out there in the ocean that's going to eat you. So in terms of the survival of her offspring, it's probably pretty good strategy. Well, I would imagine, too, with that, it sounds like if they are a species who uh, mates with more than one um, partner... And there's multiple, you know, fertilized eggs from different partners that if you are the first one out and you are eating, you're basically eating the competition and keeping them out of the gene pool. Well, actually, that, so that was the next lot- thing I was going to say. Oh, yeah. Okay, perfect. Perfect. Yeah, okay. it's like survival of the fittest, but before you're even born. This is called Survivor <laughs> Edition. Survival of the hungriest genes or something. Yeah, uh, that's this all is like today. Oh, my goodness. That that was uh Disturbing? Uh, 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 disturbing. We're going to need a bit of a palate cleanser on that one, I think. Oh, yeah. I look forward to hearing it. Kirk here with a quick note. If you're enjoying the show, be sure to subscribe and leave a five-star review. It helps other lovers of The Strange find our show. You can also find and follow us on social media. Search for Strange by Nature Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, or come visit us at strangebynaturepodcast.com. We'll see you there. Now, back to the show. All right, well, uh, we're back from the break, and I am up next. And luckily, after that somewhat uh, horrifying 
tale of eating one's siblings before they're born from Victoria, uh, I have something a little bit, uh, a little bit sweeter for us. And uh, we have Rachel to thank for this story because she she requested it. Yes, I'm so excited. <laughs> so <clears throat> we need to give a little backstory on this. You got to go back to the year 1966 in Quebec. And this is the, when a bunch of maple syrup producers, since it is March <laughs> and we're, we're talking about maple syrup. We love maple uh, syrup. They formed what I think they would probably call like a co-op. Uh, but much of the world refers to as simply a cartel. Uh, <laughs> they wanted to really corner the market on maple syrup. And uh, <laughs> it has grown to this day where they now control 77% of the world's maple syrup production. And as we learned last week, maple syrup is big business. So we are talking millions and millions of dollars that this organization controls. Uh, they are known as the Federation of Quebec Maple Syrup Producers or the FPAQ. <laughs> of course, it doesn't line up because it's, uh, you know, it's actually in French. Of course. Um, of course, being in Quebec. Now, the thing about this is, uh, it, it really is actually a pretty intelligent strategy they're looking at, although it's it is controversial in its own right, and some producers are kind of trying to rebel against it. That's a whole other story. Uh, what happened, though, is that they wanted to insulate themselves from the ups and downs of the market. Because if you think about maple syrup production, uh, it's a natural product, and it's completely weather-dependent. If you've ever been someone who's made it before, you would know some years you make a ton, some years you make very little. And if you are a person relying on that for your income, that is very, very challenging. Uh, so they wanted to create something that I just love this name. It is the uh, the ISR, the International Strategic Reserve. It's like the <laughs> I love uh, that this is the, maple syrup. It sounds like it's for yeah, oil, doesn't it? It's yeah, like, it does. exactly. It's like the you know the the strategic strategic petroleum reserve, but it's for maple syrup, and it's sort of oh a similar function. They want to try to kind of flatten out you know some of the uh, the prices, and so people can rely on kind of more a bunch more fixed price for their product each year because they're controlling. Uh, exactly how much gets released from this strategic reserve. It, so honestly, um, honestly, brilliant. it does sound very similar, not only to just like a cartel or a monopoly, but it also just remind. It just makes me think of the people who are um, doomsday people who like, like preppers, preppers, doomsday preppers. So like just hoarding instead of canned goods and medical supplies and water, it's maple syrup. All Just you really need to survive. Millions and millions of gallons, yeah. It is really all you need. Truly. Um, so it may sound pretty fancy, but really all it is is a bunch of warehouses in rural Quebec full of white barrels of maple syrup that they that sit there. And um, this proved the perfect setup for what's known as the, uh, the Great Maple Syrup uh, Heist. And what happened was in 2012, an inspector named Michel Gavreau uh, climbed onto a barrel in a warehouse to probably to get like a little bit higher perspective or check some barrels. There's a, a regulation that these warehouses need to have an inspector come through once a year and look things over, you know. So he climbed onto one of these barrels to get up to the next level and almost fell and became injured when the barrel wobbled. It shouldn't uh, wobble. Now, <laughs> it should not wobble. A barrel of maple syrup uh, weighs about 600 pounds. <laughs> and so the fact that it wobbled, he was like, huh? What oh, gosh. Oh, hold on. And kind of 
ting, 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 knocks on the barrel. That's strange. And knocks on another barrel, ting, ting, ting. They're, they're empty. All these barrels stacked up in the warehouse are empty. I don't want to be Michelle. A, <laughs> yeah. A huge investigation uh, ensues. And they revealed that starting uh, a year earlier in 19, or sorry, 2011, uh, someone had snuck into the warehouse and started to remove the barrels. And what they did is they were loading them up on a truck, driving them to a local sugar shack, draining the barrels, draining all 600 pounds of maple syrup out and refilling the barrel with water. They would then load it back on the truck, drive back to the warehouse and replace it, hoping that people would not notice you know, until that barrel needed to be used. So they, they had hopefully a year or more before they could try to pull this off. This was no small operation. Uh, they were doing, you know, truckloads of these. And at some point they said, you know what? People are going to find out anyways, I think. So why are we going to so much work transporting these and filling them with water? Let's just drain them right there at the warehouse. Oh so they my started God. draining the barrels in the warehouse and pumping it out. And uh, they would be then leaving the empty barrels behind, stacked up, looking like nothing was wrong. So if you just glanced in, you know, you wouldn't really notice. And um, it turns out that what they were really doing is they were taking this in small batches and taking it to both Vermont and New Brunswick, where they were selling it off. Uh, and it, it all made its most of it. Some of it was recovered afterwards, but most of it made its way into our maple syrup production. Some of it may have ended up, uh, you know, on your table at home. When all was tallied at the end, it turns out the thieves had stolen 3,000 tons oh my God. <laughs> of maple syrup from the warehouse. That's more so than that I is, thought it was. Yeah, that's 6 million pounds of maple syrup. <laughs> or in other words, uh, from what I read, 9,571 barrels. Yeah, I was just doing the math maple syrup. in my head and coming out with about 10,000 barrels. Yeah, so a lot. Um, do they not and, have... Uh, if this is 2011, 2012, what, where was yeah. the security? This is... Well, it was maple syrup. And, and, you know, I think they thought it was just in these warehouses and who was going to go and steal this maple syrup. But of course, as we talked about last week, maple syrup is incredibly valuable. Uh, Each one of these barrels is worth, uh, you know, on average, I think last week I said is what, $1,400 per barrel Mm -hmm. since maple syrup is so hard to make. So uh, it turns out, I of course have the numbers here. Now, this is back in $2012, but the syrup that was stolen was valued at 18.7 18.7 million Canadian dollars <laughs> worth of maple syrup. Uh, or that would be 14.7 American dollars. We got to adjust for inflation now because it's no longer 2012. So I'm not ready for in this. 20, in 2021, adjusted for inflation, that is uh, 16.57 million American uh, dollars. Or in Canadian uh, dollars, that is 21 million Canadian dollars. It's astounding. Uh, it is considered the largest heist in Canadian history. Now, I will give you a little bit more information here. The police were pretty suspicious about how over 9,000 barrels could disappear. This isn't somebody like somebody strolling knew. in and, oh, mm-hmm. yes, somebody knew. Exactly. Um, suspicion fell on the owners of the warehouse. And it turns out uh, Avic Karen, I'm not sure if I'm saying that name right, who was the spouse of one of the warehouse owners, uh, was, you know, implicated in this and uh, served five years in prison and a $1.2 million fine. 
the ringleader of this entire operation, uh, Richard Valieris, uh, was sen- sentenced to eight years in prison and a $9.4 million fine. Oh and, and, and this is uh, a, a lovely little Canadian sort of twist to this, too. They said, look, but you know what? Um, your actual sentence will be 14 years if you can't pay the money back. <laughs> so it's, it's sort of like, you know, if you pay us back, then it's it's only eight years. You know, you know what? I'm guessing uh, if they ever get served pancakes or waffles in prison, it's not real maple syrup. No, Ooh. they're going to get the fake stuff. And that would be some sweet revenge there. All ah. told, uh, the police arrested uh, 17 people in this case who were part of the largest heist in Canadian history. And that's what I have for you today. I... I I have heard of this before, obviously, like you talked about it last week a little bit, but and I had heard of the heist before this. I my jaw was on the floor. <laughs> I I don't yeah. know. That's so much more money than I ever. That's so many barrels of maple syrup. I don't know. I, I, I had when I started details. researching it, I pictured mm-hmm. somebody was like, you know, oh yeah, they they. They loaded up a bunch of barrels into their truck and they got, you know, 50 barrels of maple syrup. It's 9,000. It's 9,571. Like, they must have been just, it was like a full-time job just unloading this warehouse. And, like, they had to go multiple times and everything, too. Like, this was not just, like, a one and done. Because whenever I pictured it, it was the same thing. Like, they loaded up a bunch of barrels and then left. Yeah, Yeah, I'd heard of this, uh, too, but the details really are mind-boggling. Oh my god! Quite astounding. So again, uh, enjoy that maple syrup. It is maple syrup uh, making season, and don't don't steal it. Go out and buy some. All right. Well, we're back from the break, and now it is my turn. Uh, this week. What I have for you is something that is not necessarily always thought of as a berry. So I'm going for a plant this year. This year. Wow. I'm going for a plant uh, this time. It's been a long week, hasn't it? It's been a long week. Uh, So what we're doing, what I'm doing this week is we are talking, I'm talking about a banana. I like bananas. Banana. Okay. Right? You don't think that bananas <gasps> oh, are bizarre. I, I think you know where I'm going to end up with this. Yeah. I totally don't. So Ooh, I'm, I'm excited so excited to hear what this is about. So a little bit of background on bananas. A lot of us have seen bananas. They're in the grocery store. They're that yellow Rachel, fruit. I think it's. I think it's fair to say we've all seen bananas, not some of us. That's fair. All of us have seen bananas. <laughs> but did you know that that rind, the yellow color that we see it can be green yellow red purple and brown or brown when it's ripe depending on the species or the cultivar which i didn't know before doing the research so botanically speaking uh, a banana is the fruit of a banana plant is actually a berry a berry technically speaking is a fleshy fruit that doesn't have a stone or a pit, very similar to like avocados or peaches, things like that, where it's then produced from a single flower which contains a single ovary. That's what defines a berry, botanically speaking. Not necessarily 
culinary speaking, which is what we're all more familiar with. For example, strawberries are not actual berries, but that's another story. What do you picture when you picture a banana plant? A big palmy. Yeah, big leaves. huge leaves. The giant and bananas growing bananas the wrong way. Of mm-hmm. Do you picture like a shrub type thing, or do you picture a tree? Well, it's kind of a uh, shrub, isn't it? I picture like a like a, a, a tall plant that looks like a tree, but isn't exactly that's just because i'm a giant nerd though that's that's also fair a lot of people when they think of bananas you think of kind of like coconut trees or pineapple trees like they're really really tall and the bananas are hanging on there and it looks like a tree it's not actually a tree it's actually a type of herb so it is the world's largest herbaceous flowering plant Uh, they're often mistaken for trees, but that's because they don't have a woody stem that is above the ground. So they start off with this bulbo tuber, which is very similar to like a potato or a tulip bulb, and that's called a corm. And the leaves shoot out from that. They sprout out, and eventually they just keep sprouting new leaves growing from the center of that tube, And that creates something that looks very similar to a woody stem. Eventually, they get to the they get as tall as twenty three feet in height, which I was not prepared for knowing. That's a large herb. That is a large herb. Uh, The smallest, uh, the cavin, the dwarf Cavendish, which a lot of us see in the yellow bananas we find in the grocery store. That grows to 10 feet, and that's the smallest of all of the banana plants. Uh, So when it matures, the corm stops making new leaves and makes something called an inflorescence or a flower spike. And that eventually produces the flowers, which produces the banana fruit. Now... This is technically in the Musa genus, as coined by Carl Linnaeus himself in 1753. He got a lot of things wrong, but he started the name of the genus, so we still go with it in his honor. Uh, What is really interesting is that, and why I've included it on our Strange by Nature podcast here, is... Almost all modern bananas, which are all seedless, not all bananas are seedless, are actually originally from two wild species. They originated from two wild species that originated in Indo-Malaya, so in the Indonesian-Malaysian area, um, most likely from Papua New Guinea, way out in the Pacific Ocean. Now it's grown in 135 countries, the cool thing and why I have included it this for my story this week is not only are all bananas genetically the same, exactly, they reproduce asexually. So all of the modern Cavendish bananas that we all eat are genetically exactly the same. Oh, because they don't have any seeds, right? They don't have right, any yeah. seeds. Which is crazy, and there's a lot of different issues when it comes to being genetically the same. 
And we know what that issue is when, because we've actually run into this problem before. Now, have you, either of you had banana candy or banana flavor candy, like banana, banana Laffy Taffy's? Yep. Uh, Not very often. I mean, I like bananas, but fake bananas. When I was a wee lad. Yeah, it tastes different, right? Uh Uh-huh. It does. The reason why banana flavored candy actually tastes different is that was modeled and done after a different banana species. What? Mm -hmm. Oh, yeah. In the 1950s, before 1950s, the Cavendish bananas that we know and eat and enjoy all the time now were not the ones that were commercially sold everywhere. Oh, wow. Before the 1950s, a banana called the Gross, uh, I want to say Michael, but it's probably Mitchell. It's, well, it's 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 Gros Michel. Gros Michel, thank you. The French. It's yep. French, that of course. Again, huge nerd. There it is. Thank you very much, Kirk. <laughs> so the Gros Michel, whatever Gros Michel. I can't speak French if you all didn't <laughs> Easy know Easy for this. you to say. There it is. You can call it the Big Mike. Right. I don't want to. So it became. <laughs> unviable commercially because very similar to the Cavendishes, it also was a asexually reproduced plant because it's a seedless fruit, right? It fell prey to something called Panama disease. This was caused by a fungus that is called Fusarium oxysporum. Sure. I can do Latin, but I can't do (laughs) French. Why not? Uh, And what that fungus actually did was it attacked the roots of the, exactly, like I, you you guys couldn't see this, but Kirk had a fake knife just trying to stab at the roots of this That that may be overly dramatic. Kirk is the banana slasher. We should have known. Secrets, secrets. Banana slasher. Uh, so let, do not let's not start that, please. That's not that's not a nickname I want to I have associated with me. <laughs> anyway, so that, the that Fusar- by the way that that is going to be the name of this episode. By it the way, just it down. yes, Good. the banana slasher. Uh, so the Fusaria oxysporum attacks the roots of the plants and attacks that. Uh, it attacks the corm of the plant. And when it attacks that, it causes it to die. So because all of these plants, all of the Gros Michel, were susceptible to it, they couldn't grow it any. They couldn't grow commercially. They couldn't get enough bananas because all of them were getting sick with from this Panama disease. However, thankfully, in the 1950s, we had this other species that came into existence technically in 1836 called the Cavendish. Uh, There's two species of it. It's the dwarf Cavendish, which I talked about earlier. That one grows to about 10 feet tall. And then there's the grand Nain, nine, Nain. We're going to go with Nain, uh, which is what the Chikatita, no. Chiquita? Chiquita. That's... You, you, you really <laughs> picked a... Uh, 
You picked a great one this week. For I really did for pronunciation. Sure, can do Latin. Chikatita. 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 No, go with that. Chikatita. Yeah, we'll go with that. Chikatita. Um, Chikita is another uh, type of. There's two different Cavendish species. So we already had those available. So the banana industry as a whole, because it was very economically important, they switched from the Gros Michel to the Cavendish bananas. And we've been having those bananas ever since. Now, these bananas are also asexually reproducing and are all genetically the same, which means that they can't evolve any sort of disease resistance. The only thing that the Cavendish bananas have above the Gros Michel is that they won't, they don't get affected by the Fusarium oxysporum or the Panama disease. They are resistant to it. So the reason why most people don't like banana candy is because it's a different flavor of banana than what we are used to. However, Fun, fun time is that in the next 10 to 20 years or so, people are thinking that the Cavendish could also become unviable for large scale cultivation. In 2012, ironically, 2012, (laughs) uh, there was a scare with the Cavendish bananas that there was a potential uh, epidemic or pandemic that started to affect some of the uh, Cavendish bananas, but then they were able to curb that. So they bought themselves some time. But we really need to stop having the same exact species of banana that is just spread everywhere. We just keep relying on the same exact banana species and not spreading it all out like we should be. One banana Uh, clone covering the planet. Exactly. Yeah, we don't we don't learn our lessons. That's not something we have not do. learned our lesson at all. So eventually we're going to have a, another new flavor of banana and people are going to be upset and we'll just have to live with it. Maybe it'll be more delicious. Who knows? Maybe. Well, it could be. I know people who uh, are old enough to remember often complain that the Cavendish bananas are really bland and they like used to really love the the Big Mike or the Gros Michel uh, bananas. So you know, maybe they could. There are some bananas out there that you can get that are not really commercially viable, but people grow them in their backyards and things, and they're amazing. They have so much more flavor. Exactly. So if they can get one of those to be commercially viable, like that's exciting. That would be some amazing. Some little little red bananas in the grocery store sometimes. Maybe try those out. Tried them. Yeah. See, I think part of the problem go. is a lot of the a lot of the little ones don't travel well because the skin is so thin, mm-hmm. and there's that thick skin on the banana that really um, protects it. So. Yeah, that rind is really, really important. Uh, I do have one more fun, strange fact because uh, it is a banana. And this isn't meant to scare anybody, by the way. But technically speaking... This is not the Halloween episode. This is not the Halloween episode. I know. But technically speaking, because of the type of potassium that bananas have, they emit radiation. (laughs) So... (laughs) Every time you this eat a true. single banana, consuming one banana is about 1% of your average daily exposure to radiation. 
you're going to get 400 times the amount if you fly or anything like that. But it was something like, I think when I was researching, it was 0.15 micro, I forget the micro epilons. I forget what the uh, unit of measurement was. I, I really want to know if a micro epilon is a unit of measure and if it's not. We need to make it one. <laughs> right? That would be amazing. <laughs> Micro epaulette is like a little thing that goes on your shoulder. There it is. But so since they contain potassium, joke. it is a very bad joke. But since they That's contain potassium, laugh. they do emit <laughs> radiation. Uh, it's not something that you need to freak out about, but it is a fun fact. Uh, it doesn't add to the total radiation dose that is in the human body anyway, not in any way slight way or form or anything but it is something that we i really wanted to touch on eat eat your bananas eat your bananas. potassium is more important for your body than the you get more radiation from like just walking around in your house than from a banana okay you are not wrong then. <laughs> and that's what i've got for you both this week Thanks, everyone, for listening to today's show. Be sure to subscribe. New episodes drop every Wednesday, and we love sharing this strange world with all of our listeners. If you would be so kind as to leave us a five-star review, that would be great. It lets other lovers of the strange discover the show. You can reach out to us on social media by searching for Strange by Nature Podcast on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. You can send us an email as well. Our address is contact at strangebynaturepodcast.com. If you want more information about the show, you can also check out our website, which is strangebynaturepodcast.com. Until next week, get outside, stay curious, and embrace the strange.